Hello, beautiful people. My guest today is Kevin Kelly. Kevin is the founding editor of Wired Magazine and a former editor and publisher of The Whole Earth Review. He's also been a writer, a photographer, a conservationist, and student of Asian and digital culture. His new book, Vanishing Asia, has raised over $600,000 on his Kickstarter campaign. And when he was 20 years old, he dropped out of college to go to Asia. He was he arrived in Taiwan in 1972, and he was blown away by the culture and how much he realized he didn't know. He's popular for his concept of a thousand true fans, and he's a futurist whose wisdom has continually proven to be correct. I really enjoyed this conversation with Kevin. He is a, a godfather of the internet in a very real way. And to be able to sit down with him for an hour and talk to him about his new book, the internet, what it was like in the very beginning, it was tremendously impactful for me. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to share the conversation with you. If you have any thoughts about it or would like to give me some feedback, the best place to do that is at Hey Danny Miranda on Twitter. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and I appreciate you for listening from the bottom of my heart. But now, here's my conversation with Kevin Kelly. Interesting people, thought provoking conversations, nutrition for your brain. Journey through the minds of the world's top performers and discover what it really takes to achieve your highest version. This is the Danny Miranda Podcast. So I'd love to start with you getting invited to an internet community in 1981. How did exactly did that happen? Um, in 1981, there was only what we call um, bulletin boards. These were these were um, kind of like internet um, threads that were hosted often in people's bedrooms because that was you had to build your machine to to host it, and you had to dial up. You had to use your telephone line to dial in directly and there was a limit on the number of people that could be um, joining at one time so you'd often get a, a busy signal and these were passed around the numbers that you could call were passed around you almost had like had to be invited because how else would you hear about on the number and um uh so some of some of the earliest in 81 were these bulletin boards that were being um, shared not on the internet because it wasn't the internet at the time. Um, they were being passed um, by um, email, um, uh, which was CompuServe or um, Prodigy. So, um, so my invitations were just—it was very, very local. But later on, a few years later, I had an invitation to join an experimental. Um, jacked up version of this where they could have a hundred people at once, 200 people at the same time 
interacting with multiple threats. And that was sort of the beginning of what we now know as kind of the, the internet. Um, but that also required an invitation because it was an experiment. It was being run by a nonprofit. Um, it was, they were kind of exploring what happens when people can talk uh, virtually. And so it was called the eyes um, network. And um, I learned so much from that. Uh, in fact, very quickly we began to see some of the same kind of behaviors that we would see later on, like we call them flame wars, where people would, people who were ordinarily very soft-spoken would become different people online. There was trolling. We, we saw the first evidence of trolling, which this medium was built for trolling. It became very easy. Again, people who ordinarily would not be as misbehaving found themselves becoming trolls. And so um, uh, that taught me a lot about um, what was going to be coming later on. When you looked at it, were you like, what is going on? This is going to transform society. What was your initial perception in those early days? It was a combination of things. I think part of the part of it was um, simply perplexity and, and wondering, wondering if this would scale, wondering how it would scale, whether it would ever appeal to other people. It was a little bit like CB radio. Like, is this CB radio where it's just going to be kind of people talking about CB radio? Um, or is, I mean, you could feel potential. You could feel the potential, but it was really unclear whether the potential would ever be realized. It's a little bit like, I don't know, it's like blockchain today. You feel the potential, but really, is it really ever going to um, become a thing unto itself? Um, it's unclear. So um, there was definitely this feeling that this was powerful technology, but um, the people who were using it were mostly kids and boys and young men. And, you know, could it be domestic? Could it be ever? And, and it required uh, way too much programming uh, skills, we'll call it. It wasn't visual. It was all text. You had to do C prompt. You had to, you had to memorize stuff. So it was not evident that um, it would leave that form very soon. You could kind of imagine something way in the future, but it was not clear that that was going to be it. So, I, so, so there was many strikes against it becoming widespread, but you could, at least I could, I could feel that potential. And you were, when you were seeing the potential, did you then want to bring it to more people? I started writing about it. Yes. I started writing about it and I wrote a story in uh, 1984 for a magazine called New Age Journal, which was, as you can guess, it was very new agey. But I was talking about, I called, I called it the network nation. And I kind of went out and visited um, lots of these um, erupting parts of this network nation, including a lot of kind of spiritual, new ageish, new agey kind of sites that were trying to do things, how you do online prayer and, and it was really kind of interesting experiment. So there were a bunch of experiments and I was reporting on it saying, look, there's a new continent erupting. It's just like a different place. 
and here are, here are little glimpses of it. I don't know where it's going, but here's you know here's where it is. And so um, yeah, my inclination was to share and to write about it. Were you always that way as a little kid, just observing things and wanting to share about it? Yes, even in high school, I was recommending things, discovering what people were interested in, and then saying, "Hey, you should know about this," or "Hey, this is." Um, you'll like this book or here's here's a mail order catalog you should know about. Um, yes, that was my natural thing. I did a newsletter in high school. I yeah, I made a I made a rock and roll music video in 69. And yeah, I, I, I kind of was someone who naturally is compulsively likes to share stuff I find. Hmm. So Let's get into when you take your trip across Asia and that must have been, and you've said it's been a transformative experience in, in your experience, but you know, one of the things that struck me was about 5,000 days ago, you had a talk called the next 5,000 days of the internet. And you describe a massive system that turns into quote unquote, the one, and that makes us think similarly like we all think similarly. And what's interesting to me is that in researching for your book, you call the book an ode to otherness. And we study all the same things in school and watch the same movies, but and we have the same ideas, but this book is about differences. So how do you think about that juxtaposition? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. So the the um, my observation of traveling for... 49 years now uh, um, in Asia is that um, many parts of Asia, particularly the cities, are are converging in their culture around the world besides Asia. If you took a photograph of uh, people walking in the city and you took out the signs for the language, it'd be very hard to tell what city you were in. So... um, so we do seem to be converging on this thing. And one of the common dreams of most any young person in the world is they would love to have a nice waterproof air conditioned box that has Wi-Fi in it to live in. And um, uh, that's common. It's a common dream. And, there, and, and, and we are kind of, I believe, constructing kind of a global culture. Um, while that's going on, um, the villages around the world, particularly in Asia, where I'm familiar with, are emptying. Their young people are leaving. It gets very hard to kind of maintain any kind of economic activity if the young people have left. Um, they're moving into cities, which are swelling. And um, so the danger is, is that when we are connected to each other 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year, it becomes more and more difficult to have different ideas, different to think differently. And um, I think people will have to work extra hard to try and think differently. So I've been compiling this book of what's being left of the Asia that's vanishing as people leave and they don't do these traditions or costumes and things any longer. 
Um, I think there's perfectly valid reasons why they're disappearing. I'm not trying to stop it. I'm not trying to recover them. I'm not trying to protect them. I'm just saying we should know about them because they have a seed of difference and otherness in them. So um, I think this book and others like it play a role in helping us, prompting us to have different ideas, to think differently, to understand that um, the common solutions that we have around the world for how do we find food, what do we eat, what do we dress, what does our space look like, that these solutions that have been engineered and evolved over thousands of years still have some value for us to know about. There will be inspiration for us doing things differently in the future. They probably will go away. I'm, again, not trying to stop that. I'm merely saying, as I go, we should record and document them because they have within them some genius that might be useful to us in the future. What genius do you think that is? Well, the genius is, let's say, um, humans have a need to collectively come together to celebrate things. COVID only proves that that is a human desire. And so, um, you know, in the West, we have music concerts. And they're kind of boring at some level because they're all the same. And then you have something like Burning Man come along, which was an entirely different way of making something where you said, look, um, we're not going to put on a show. You're going to put on a show. The audience is going to make the show. The audience is going to entertain each other. We'll give you a big blank area. You come, you build whatever it is, and then you entertain each other. Well, that some of the seeds of that can be found in places like some of the um, the Kumela in India, which is uh, if. 30 million people coming together on a, on a riverbed and they make up and they make an instant city. And they basically, they construct the temporary city to entertain each other. And then it's taken down and that's kind of like Burning Man. So in, 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 in these kinds of things are the elements of some future innovation. So uh, you go to these festivals and these festivals, have within them the germ of genius, some idea, some innovation that can be reused into the modern world. So um, costuming, it's very inconvenient, you know, but maybe the colors can be, right now we have a, right now I say, you know, in, in this era, there's a fashion for black, 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 everything's black, but what about color? Color is free. Could we imagine having uh, a very colorful outfits? Yes, you could. You can see it here, over here, where they still have these colors and, and the beauty that they have. So these are the examples of the genius where buried in these ancient traditions are a solution that can be reused today. You mentioned how it's going to become more and more difficult to come up with new ideas. And you've also mentioned before that one thing you and your family does is take a, a Sabbath day from technology. If you're still doing that, is that one of the ways you can use to generate new ideas? Absolutely. I'm a huge believer in Sabbaths, sabbaticals, taking time off. 
um, play, goofing off, being inefficient. Um, that those are the times when we can be creative. We can investigate. The, th the thing about the thing about the process of innovation and science itself is that it's not fundamentally efficient. It's fundamentally inefficient because it it contains so much failure and dead ends and stuff that doesn't work and prototypes that 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 fail. And so that process of learning and exploring, coming up with new ideas is inherently inefficient. You have to waste a lot of time doing it. And one of the reasons why the young people are often the ones who discover new things is because they can afford to spend 50 hours wasting the, on a game or something. And so um, doing things for no other reason but the pure joy of it is one of the paths to a new idea. And so... Um, a Sabbath in stopping what you do on a habitual routine basis and doing something different is one of those methods that takes you out of the current problem set and lets you see it from a distance. And one of the benefits of not using your same thing every day and not doing anything the same way once a week is that it takes you out and gives you a different perspective on what it is that you were kind of assuming in your basic assumptions. And so, um, yes, I think a Sabbath of any kind is very powerful. A sabbatical, a sabbatical, the same thing, but amplified more. People take their uh, weekly retreats, whatever that manner is. That's supposed to be what a vacation is, but vacations are often filled up with activities and what you often need is something that's a retreat, literally a, 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 a stopping, a, a, a kind of a silence to um, let it, and there's nothing wrong with having a vacation that's very active, it's just that you need and can use other kinds that are a break from routine that allow you to have new ideas. Could you take us through an idea that came from doing nothing or do, doing something unproductive? Oh my gosh. Um, well, it, it, so one of the, right now I have a Kickstarter a campaign for a book that um, I'm releasing that is a huge nothing in the sense that um, it's a, a thousand pages of Vanishing Asia, what we were just talking about. And um, there's no market for this. I mean, there's there's nobody... People on Twitter once saying what we need is some more pictures of uh, vanishing parts of Asia, and I and I've been working on it for forty nine years, um, totally as a composer, totally as kind of like for for its own sake because I enjoyed doing it because I was compelled to do it. There again, there was no real market for this beyond say my own thousand true fans, but it's. Um, it's economically doesn't make sense to to spend time doing it. But yeah, I did that over 49 years. And I did that uh, be, and I spent a huge amount of time doing it and a huge amount of expense doing it. But it was just something that I enjoyed doing and wanted to do and had to do. And so I think 
um, that's an example of um, things that came from wasting time, basically. Um, I can't tell you the, the, the number of ideas I get just by walking um, where I can release my mind from, from working on it. So, so your, your, your subconscious is actually one of the most powerful tools you have. And you want to listen to it. You want to be able to listen to it. And you want to be able to, because it whispers. Your, your subconscious just whispers to you. And so you need to have a way. It has, it has solutions and ideas and things that it's working on, even while you're sleeping and often while you're sleeping. And you kind of have to have some method of hearing it, of accessing it. Some people find it, it's in the shower for those few minutes in the shower, and then they've, it comes to them another time. For me, it's walking or doing other things that are not trying to solve the problem. So you solve the problem while you're not working on it because this other part of you is working on it, but you have to have access to that. What do you mean by your subconscious whispers? Could you expand on that? Well, the subconscious is, by definition, below our consciousness. That's what it's below, subconscious. We're not conscious of it. So we have an apparatus in our psyche, in our brain, where we are aware of what we think and we're aware of things in, in our awareness. But we have this other apparatus that, for whatever reason, um, we don't have easy access to. It's subconscious. So to get to become conscious of the subconscious requires an effort or requires hacking. It requires um deliberate attempts to do it and so um it's not it, it's very similar i mean the, the kind of um what's the word the, the logic or the the cognition is not unfamiliar to us it's often dream like dream logic it doesn't kind of make a narrative sense over the long term but it but but we but the people who are creative will find ways to access that cognition that they're that they're doing anyway it's very common to counsel people to sleep on it which actually works if you have a problem you sleep on it and the next morning you might be able to figure out that your brain was working on it unconsciously subconsciously but you might it might be forgotten, or may may not have access to it if you're not in the habit of kind of asking it. And I'd say whisperness, meaning in the sense that it's not shouting, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, evident, it's not loud. Um, you have to do something. You have to pay the quarter to kind of get it. When you were biking across the United States, how much was your subconscious whispering to you? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, so I rode my bicycle across the U.S. the first time. I've ridden it twice. The first time was from um, San Francisco to New York, and um, I was part of a. It was a part of a program I had to, to to live, expecting to die in six months, and this was the last three months of it. And um, so I kept a journal and I kept a sketchbook 
where I did a sketch and a haiku every day. And I find drawing is kind of maybe one of the things where you can listen to your subconscious because oftentimes you're kind of starting out and you don't even know what you're drawing. It's kind of being revealed to you. And writing is often the same way that journaling. Journaling is one of those methods to access your subconscious is that I don't set out knowing what I'm going to say. And it's, I'm kind of like I'm channeling it in some capacity in a journal. You're just, as things come up, the next word is being suggested to you. It's not that you're kind of necessarily steering it. You're it's being revealed. So um, that's why journaling is kind of really interesting to go back many years later. Often what's being said is more clear to you later on, given what you know, what happens. You can say, oh, I wow, was there, I was talking to myself. I was saying it right there. I didn't even know it. And so um, I think that um, uh, that was true with me riding a bicycle. Um, I had um, could kind of uh, try to tap into my subconscious by poetry, by drawing, and by journaling. So what else did you learn across that that bike ride across America or those multiple? I mean, yeah. was it transformative in the same way that going across Asia was? Um, not directly. It was... Um, um, it was leading to something that was very transformative, and I, which I told a story on one of the very early episodes of This American Life, I told the story of my journey on being reborn, basically. So um, in the context of that bicycle ride was I was riding to dying. So I was going to be, I had until a certain date, October 1st, to lift, and I was riding towards my end. And so the the actual being reborn was um, was transformative in many ways. Um, and, and that was just kind of leading to it. The, the, the bike ride, what I learned from the bike ride outside of that was I'd never really been too much of America. I had, when I was young, went to Asia and I became Asian and I'd never really seen what the U S was and, um, riding around through the West was kind of eye opening. you know, um, I grew up in the East coast suburb of New York city People in the West have a very different view. There's a lot more of that kind of, um, again, anti-government kind of style, a little bit of the of the, the redneck um, mistrust of government was like, whoa, I had no idea this was, you know, that kind of Idaho. You know, I went through Idaho. It's like, hmm, boy, this is, this is a different America than the blue state that I grew up in. And I'd never been out of that. And so that was um, getting kind of feeling the little different pulse of, of America was a huge thing. Just, just getting to see how the rest of the world and the rest of the country lived was, was a big thing. And that was also with, with my teenage son, we rode from uh, Vancouver down to um, Mexico border along the coast of um, the West coast from Canada to Mexico. And, um, that was done more, more recently. And that was the same kind of thing. It was like getting, you know, 
parts of Northern California are very different from Silicon Valley. They're very hard up. It's really hard scrabble. They're boarded up towns or stores and towns and stuff. It was like, yeah, they're, it's really good to get out of my little bubble and see what's really happening for the rest of the country. And that's, um, and, and you, when you're on a bicycle, you feel that a lot more. You feel it and sense it and see it. You're on different kind of roads. You're not on a big eight lane highway, which is cutting through something. You're actually in, in the place itself. And um, I highly recommend, by the way, bike tours as a way to see something. You see a little bit more than if you're walking, which is a little too slow. And you see a thousand million times more than if you're in a car. So it's a good compromise in between walking in a car. What was the difference? You said you did it the second time with your son? Yeah. So what was the difference between doing it alone the first time versus doing it with your son? Yeah, actually, with my son and uh, my nephew and and his cousin, um, two teenage boys. Um, well, yeah, I mean, part of part of what we were doing, what I was doing, was less about me and more about them. So I was less kind of you know on the journey of seeking me, and it was more of kind of like introducing them to this experience. Well, first of all, showing them that. Uh, giving them a sense of accomplishment. I mean, I tell you, if you bicycled from Canada to Mexico and complete that, that gives you a tremendous boost in confidence um, that you can do other things that you didn't think was because they weren't real. They almost didn't make it. Or, I mean, they almost gave up, but there was a sense of, no, you can really do this. And so um, for me, it was a lot more of kind of, um, of uh, what was going on was introducing young teenagers to the possibilities of what is out there and 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 good and bad and just kind of um, one thing is when you're kind of like this. Um, you're, you don't know what's ahead, right? And even if, if you have a map, you still don't know, really know what's ahead. And you're kind of, you're much more reliant on the kindness of strangers, the um, a, the, the luck of a place being open because you don't have reservations, like kind of a sense of, of going with the flow and being open to the universe and trying to teach them to depend and rely on that kind of spirit of... Um, not having everything decided and ordered and arranged for you where you kind of actually have to do that work. So, you know, it's, it's sort of the kinds of things that, you know, like outward bound and a program like that might teach you. Um, and that's sort of what I was doing in my own version. When you said that they, there was a point when they might not have made it through. Yeah. What types of things did you say to them to help them propel them to keep going? Well, one was like, if you don't do this, you'll always regret it. If you don't finish, you will regret this. Um, it's sort of like, um, uh, the, w- the way you often do it is just like, okay, um, let's just do one more day. 
Okay, we can, we can do one more day. Just, just you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of thing like when you're climbing Mount Everest. It's like, like, we'll just do one more step and then we'll do the step. And okay, can we do one more step? And so you, you just break it down to kind of like the easiest next thing to do. Let's just go to this other town and have lunch. And you're there at lunch. Oh, you're feeling a little better. Do you think we can make it to here? So you, so you kind of, it, when you're discouraged and stopped, and as long as you're not hurting or whatever, I mean, not injured, you, you kind of break it down to this kind of the next thing. And then sometimes even doing that for a little while, you kind of break through whatever that discouragement or was, and you can kind of say, Hey, I can see it. I can see it now we can do it. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of that, of, of just of, saying it's actually not that difficult to just ride to the next town. We can do that. We may go slow, but we can do it. You're t- we may, may have another flat tire, but we can fix it, right? It's, these are all solvable. So so it's those are the great lessons of just saying, we'll break it down into small, little doable chunks. I'd like to change gears here a little bit and ask, how did you come up with the quantified self meetup? Yeah. Um, a wired writer named Gary Wolf, a friend of mine, we sometimes go in walks and talk about things. And um, uh, this is maybe 20 years ago, I think. We were talking about the fact that the technology was allowing us to monitor things. So we began to kind of imagine a future where this was becoming common, saying, what would happen if you could do this? What would happen if you could do that? And um, in that kind of conversation of imagining, well, what if you you were wearing all the stuff and it was recording everything about you? And um, um, I think it was Gary, um, came up with the term uh, quantified self, or maybe it was me. I, we don't even remember who it was, but I, I think it was Gary. And so um, that term, as soon as we said that term, it kind of crystallized the entire big idea. And um, we said, you know, now that this is crystallized, I think I'd like to know... We we said, you know, this is so um, inevitable that it may be that people are doing this right now. So I sent uh, on my blog, it was, I just announced on my blog that we were going to have a meetup, a, a user group meetup for anybody who was doing quantified self. If you think you're doing quantify self, come to my studio here on this date. And it was amazing because there was 25 people showed up, among one of whom was Tim Ferriss, whom I didn't know. He just nobody knew Tim Ferriss. He just showed up saying, I've been I've been tracking myself. And we had a great discussion. Um, and and I and it was a show and tell. And it's okay, you're here, tell us what you're doing. And it was amazing. And we realized, oh my gosh, this is, um, 
this is this is there's 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 going to be a plenty here. So we started having monthly uh, meetups with show and tells, and then that spread to other countries, other cities, excuse me, and then eventually to other countries. There were where people show and tell were coming in and talking about what they were doing and why they were doing it and what they learned. Do you remember any of those first conversations with Tim Ferriss? What you yeah. guys talked about? He was going on and on about ketamine or something, ketamine or whatever. It was just, it was like he was totally into the deep, way beyond what I could absorb. And um, that's all we really talked about. Again, he was, I don't think he had, I don't know if he had actually had released his book yet. I don't remember. But um, if he had, I hadn't read it. So we didn't really, we, I didn't really um, know much more about him to talk about it. Of course, later on, I got to know him better. But um, uh, those early ones were, were, were really about his, uh, his practices and tracking himself. And he's a very, like a lot of athletes, I didn't really realize until much later, but uh, uh, professional athletes are tremendous self-trackers. I mean, they, the high level, they track everything about their diet, everything about all their different bodily functions. Um, of course, obviously about their performance, but also just about their their, their body in, in a degree that is really shocking. And they, they use it and integrate that to determine their training programs. So they act on it. So it's actionable kind of um, information. And that's one of the reasons why Quantify Self hasn't really gone very far in the consumer world, the lay world, because you need almost like a professional person to extract meaning from it. And most people don't have that. What we need is an AI. I think Quantify Self won't really go anywhere until we have AIs that are kind of tuned to digest all the information that you can generate in Quantify Self. So we can, you can generate huge amounts of data, but it's very, very hard to, to, to act upon that data in any meaningful way. Um, and so people kind of stop tracking after a while because they just it doesn't change their behavior very much. So we need another level of, uh, I think AI, which in the athletic world is taken over by coaches and performance gurus who are, who are doing that for you, but we can't, most people can't afford that. Yeah. I use an aura ring and that's helpful to look at the, the resting heart rate and heart rate variability. How long you've been wearing it for two years. Okay. Yeah. And um, so you still find the information from it useful in terms of changing your behavior. Definitely. It, it's great to help to know when I um, am eating too late or something like that. But for you, what, what's the most important uh, metric that you track daily? I don't track anymore. Hmm. Why is that? Um, I think I said, because I think I learned enough from from the little that I was tracking that I can kind of get a sense even without tracking how I'm doing. Yeah. 
you know, I, I, I have a pretty good sense of how many steps I've made, even though I don't wear a Fitbit anymore, but I'm kind of, after wearing the Fitbit, you can kind of, I can tell. So it, it's kind of like that. Um, um, so right now I'm not really tracking anything. Yeah. That makes sense that it's a tool used to help you uh, not use it in the future. It can be. Um, I, I think if there was more intelligence or if you had someone like a human who was really trying to, uh, and you had a goal that you were trying to uh, aim towards, um, that, then it would be useful. Mm-hmm. So I want to uh, read this quote from your daughter who said, this is directed towards you in 2016. I have so much to be thankful for you for. you for. Thank you for teaching and showing me to be self-reliant and truly resourceful and creative. You have showed me the benefits of inquiry, systems thinking, being of service, being a family dad, paying attention. You are the best dad I know. So what stands out to me is the benefits of inquiry. Mm. What, how would you go about teaching the benefits of inquiry to a child? Mm. I would say, I would just step back and say that um, they're far the best way to transmit teaching to children is through example and not through what you say. Kids, after a while, tune out what you're saying. And I think learn far more from observing how you act and what you do. And so um, I think in this case, um, she's just watching me inquire, me do things. And it wasn't so much that I sat, sat down to teach her how to do this. I think it's that she's learning from doing or watching and being, you know, part of what we're doing. So, so um, in addition to, um, you know, school, whatever school you're, child is in you're going to have to supplement with something else because no school is perfect so the job of the parent if they have if you're not homeschooling and even if you are is that you are supplementing that learning with many other experiences and so that would be the kinds of experiences that we would try and do would be things where um they're inquiring learning like they would have science projects which i really have a huge um, support for. I, I, I think um, getting kids to do real science, real science meaning you don't know, you, even the parent, don't know how it's going to work out, what the answer is. And um, so we would try to do, I would do experiments with them or help them do experiments where we literally had no idea what was going to happen, what the answer was. And then recording it all and trying to make a hypothesis, and and you you have a you have them make a hypothesis what they think is going to happen, then you record what actually happens, and then you try and see if they can explain what happened. So that is something that um, that's kind of a, a, an experience that we would do as a family. And then for systems thinking, 
what what types of things stand out? You know, I'm not sure. Again, I don't think I ever sat down. I never, I never <laughs> said to myself, I want to be sure my kids are system thinkers. <laughs> um, I, this is Ting that you're talking about, right? Yes. So, so um, I, I, I think Ting has a natural affinity for system thinking and um, I'm not conscious of having um, taught her. I think the only thing, the closest that I can think of that you might have with teaching system thinking is, is troubleshooting, teaching people to troubleshoot. Um, because the best way to troubleshoot something is to be a system thinker. Is to understand that you know that there's a systems. The systems have their own thing, and so you are kind of um, you're kind of when you're troubleshooting something complicated that doesn't work, you are um, you're having to kind of adopt the systems thinking in order to troubleshoot it. Again, I don't think I, we ever I ever consciously described it in those ways, but um, in kind of reviewing and helping someone try and figure out what went wrong, that is a kind of trouble of system thinking. Yeah. And overall, in terms of parenting, what would be some of the big suggestions and frameworks that you'd have someone follow? Well, I don't, here's all I can say is, is I, I don't feel like I can dispense parenting advice to others, what they should follow. I can only tell you what I did. Okay. And it may not work for your kid. It may not work for your situation, but here's what we did. So, so, so for me, it was very important to be consistent. I really valued, and I think our kids valued being consistent, meaning that um, consistent in terms of how we apply rules, consistent in terms of, of being consistent in our our love for them, of um, of not, I think part of kids that live in chaotic households, part of the reasons it's chaotic is they don't know how their parents are going to respond. You know, let's say if there's an alcoholic father or something, it's like, you never know. It's like, and that, that kind of like, I don't know if this is, you know, what's going to happen that is inconsistent. And so part of what we are trying to make is an environment where they felt that they knew how, you know, they could count on things. It was reliable. It was consistent. Um, and so um, that was one thing um, I think, uh, you know, being supportive of interests. So that was, something that we, I really bent out was, I don't know what, I don't, you know, I don't want you to do what I'm doing necessarily. I don't care, but I don't know what it is that you are really good at, but we let's try and find out what that is. Let's try lots of things and then kind of support the things that you seem to want to do more of and we'll together kind of try and um, find that. So there was a lot of kind of trying stuff, widening the, as much as, the kid had interested in as much as we could afford in that sense, time-wise, 
to try things mm-hmm. to see if, if, if anything resonated. Um, and um, so that was one thing that, that um, we stressed. And I think um, uh, character building is another thing of, you know, demanding a certain kind of a character of honesty, those kinds of things as being saying that these are very, very, very important, much more important than what you learn in the factual things is how you overcome diversity, how you, um, you know, whether you are honest, whether you're kind to others, those basic qualities, I think we treated very seriously. Well, I know you're short on time, so I, I want to uh, just ask one final question, which is about the two-year national service. Mm. Why do you think that Americans should be forced to have a two-year national service? Yeah, a mandatory two-year. So, yes. um, one is I believe that the f- the more rights you have the more responsibilities that rights and responsibilities should be tied together. And that um, when we have, when you have a a state, a country, whatever that has a lots of rights that you need to earn those rights with responsibilities. And, and I think um, service um, should be one of those um, responsibilities. And, uh, I think also um, part of the problem we have, I mean, it's not, it's our family is, 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 is a mark of it, is that we live in kind of a very isolated, um, segregated economically um, communities. I mean, I mean, it's like the whole entire Silicon Valley is one thing. It's not like, I'm not talking about a neighborhood. I'm talking about like, you know, we're in Silicon Valley, which is its own bubble. And we can drive anywhere in Silicon Valley. We're going to see the same kind of a, of, of a system, but that's not the whole world. And so one of the advantages of, of a service is that you, as a young person, is that you would be working together and mixing with people who come from very different backgrounds than you do. And what, it's important that when I say service is I would say, well, you have a choice of services. If you want to go into the military, fine. If you want to go in the Peace Corps, fine. If you want to work at Code for America at home, fine. If you want to volunteer for two years at a local hospital, fine. It doesn't matter. It's not about the military, although that has it will be an option. It's service, outward service. Or if you want to go overseas, fine. We'll pay for your ticket, send you overseas. That's okay. And so um, those experiences would be incredibly formative Um it would be great for the country in terms of helping bridge some of the gap uh, differences between um, people who are privileged and those who are not in whatever dimension we're talking about. And I think um, there'd be this army of young people doing service. And so the many nonprofits and other kind of um, institutions that would need that kind of work would benefit too. It would be win, win, win all around. It should be mandatory. And by mandatory, I mean literally mandatory. I mean, there's no exception for the handicap. Mm. They can, we know that they can um, 
be of service too. That, that, and that gives them dignity and that gives them, you know, if you're at home, you can still serve. And I think that's, that would, you know, that without exception, I think would, would, would really be a very powerful message to everybody that everybody counts. Everybody has dignity. Everybody can still serve no matter what it is. You know, there's going to be some exceptions. You're, you're in a coma, right? Or whatever. But I mean, um, generally that, that, um, you know, everybody should serve. Well, I agree. And I think it's a, a step in the right direction for the United States, but if not, you know, they could always get vanishing Asia and explore Asia through that, uh, book. Right. But what, where can you send people and where can we, um, let people know what you're up to and, and what yeah. you so right now I am running a Kickstarter campaign for my book, Vanishing Asia. As we talked about, this huge thousand page, actually it's in three volumes. There's so many pages that I divided into three volumes. Um, 1,080 pages, it weighs 27 pounds. It's this huge thing with 9,000 images, all these big numbers. It's giant, big. Um, and uh I've done a Kickstarter to kind of try to get it to as many fans as possible. So there's a discount now for those who come. Um, the retail price will be $300 and the Kickstarter is $250. Um, for, for an, and it's limited to 5,000 copies. No more than that will be, be printed. Um, and uh, if you go to Kickstarter, Vanishing Asia, you should be able to find it. Um, I am very proud of it. I think it's unlike any other book in the world. I can guarantee you that because I have all these books are sitting right here, all the photo books in the world and all the art and travel books. And this is unlike any of them. So um, go to the Kickstarter if you're inclined. Um, my web page in the rest of the world is just my initials, kk.org. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I hope that you enjoy the book. I'm glad you had me here talking about it. Thank you for your questions. Um, and um, I really appreciate your hosting me. Well, thank you for being here. And I'll have th those links in the show notes. Okay, thank well, you. thanks. Yep. Awesome. Have a good day. You too. Alrighty. That was great. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Kevin Kelly. If you did or have any thoughts about the episode, let me know on Twitter at Hey Danny Miranda. I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart for listening until the final seconds. And I will see you guys in the next one. Peace.